Good morning, people of planet Earth. It is me again, that voice in your ear. Those steps in the background, the crickets chirping. It's 4.30 in the morning on a very mild fall evening morning in New Jersey. We have a crescent moon, looks like a quarter moon, with no stars to be seen. No Venus to guide our navigation today. But we have some stuff to discuss together. First of all, I have some listener feedback I want to share with you. So let's uh, see what my dad has to say. Well, your last uh, podcast with that gentleman you interviewed was very, very fascinating. And the comments about <clears throat> Alex Jones was fascinating, too, in that um, they are trying to get us into more dense population centers, which I always thought was kind of interesting because of the potential of a of an epidemic, pandemic, whatever. The way to kill the most people is to get all these people in a, in a city that a mass infection would cause an overload of the medical system there and more and more people would die. However, they, they determined to reduce our population. Having everybody together would make it a lot easier. What did Brzezinski say? He said it's easier to kill a million people, inherently easier to kill a million people than it is to control them. So thank you for your great podcast. Keep up the good work. So thanks for that, Dad. Uh, you are my number one listener and true fan. Thank you so much. I love you. Now, let's get into um, just some more about reprogramming the mind. Now, you might ask yourself, why do I want to reprogram the mind? Like, what would be the motivation for such a thing? Um, we talked yesterday about the um, mindfulness meditation and loving meditation as a way to soften up the existing programming. And my uh, one of my feedback from a person I won't name was saying, hey, well, why would I want to love my enemies? Why don't I just, like, turn the other cheek and let them kill me? So, that's really not the point, though. The point was not to put your life in danger or to go easy on the people trying to kill you. But the point was, if you want to loosen up your own programming, right? Then that is a way to do it. Okay. You might say, well, why would I even want to do that? That's another question. <clears throat> now, Spirko's theory was that if you have any reaction at all, to um, the politicians, then they're winning. 
the seven touch principle. So if you let them brand you in any way, even a negative way, saying that you hate this other politician, then you're being branded by them. That's basically what he's saying. Look, I think um, and also I think he was saying that uh, it doesn't matter who you choose. I'm not sure, but uh, in any case, if you say it doesn't matter who you choose and you have to be on team A or team B and do everything you can to fight them, You could also reprogram yourself to be full of hate. You know, no one says that you have to. The program that you want to create is one of love and kindness and compassion. Except Buddha. I do think it's definitely something to question. Why do you hate so much? And where is that coming from? And to be able to soften it up is definitely something that's a good therapeutic. And that's what this show is about. It's about a therapy session. And it turns out it's actually my therapy session. And anyone who actually listened to yesterday's episode might be shaking their head and saying, what the hell is this person on about? So let me just give you a quick recap of the important things that I got out of yesterday, which is mathematics is the study of the other, of the variable, of the X, of the unknown. It's a set of formalizations to give structure to that unknown. Now, it has been proven through Gödel and such that no matter what you think about this unknown, if you give it any leeway, if you give it enough leeway, let's say infinite space and infinite time, then it can come and get you. That's basically what, uh, that's basically what, uh, Turing said as well. Turing and Church said it in different ways, and they basically created a formulism for defining any function to be executed, a universal function that can execute any code, and they have different ways of doing it. But again, if you allow for a universal execution, then you're allowing for some really bad things to happen. <clears throat> so, the point here is that <clears throat> in many, many cases, 
even the formulas we're dealing with are for us unknowns. Right? Even if you have a body of science to back up for your mind, even these theories are not fully understood. And very few of us are able to even interpret these theories mathematically properly. So we have the narrative view of the world, we have the mathematical view of the world, and most of us are stuck in the narrative, the storytelling. The podcasting. Now this is a podcast, this is a stream, this is a serialization, an ordered series of sounds being emitted by my mouth going into the microphone, going into the computer. Ones and zeros, stream of random. That's what this is. <clears throat> but I'm going to stick to one topic now for a little bit. Because we're allowed to do that in the stream of random. Just because something is random doesn't mean it doesn't have any any consistency at all. Because you can have pockets of consistency even in a random stream. And we're allowed to break the rules and be consistent for a while. So buckle up your seats and let's get going. I'm going to keep this really simple. The computing, the search for general computation, <clears throat> and actually the first machine, <clears throat> the bombe, or the bomb, it was um, created by Turing, where he invented his idea of a general purpose computer and implemented it to crack the code. Because he exploited a flaw in the mathematics of the encryption. And according to the movie, the first message every morning was the weather report, and it ended in Heil Hitler, which was what he used to exploit um, <clears throat> the code. Now, the point is here, kids, he created a generic computer that could execute anything. And in doing so, and as done before by uh, Gödel and Church, they showed that you can 
encode anything. All of these functions can be encoded into this system with a compiler so that all of your structures can be put in there. All of your formulas. Now it's a question if all of the formulas are executable. Right? But what we're trying to get at, and what's important here, is that once you've encoded these things into this form, and Gödel just created a big number, this humongous number, which all of the mathematics was encoded into, or this mathematical system. Once you've done that, um, first of all, the system that will execute it is generic, right? And you're opening up, let's say, Hell's Gate, because if someone passes you one of these humongous blobs, you know, you download this 500 gigabyte executable. Like, how are you going to even check it? How do you even trust it? Right? Does it contain a virus? How would you even know? And that's basically... <clears throat> and if you allow for it to be infinite size, like, you'll never know. So we're getting into this question of decidability, which was the trickiest problems that I ever, um, my brain normally just froze up even with dealing with any of this stuff because it was way over my head. And part of our therapy session has been to unclog my brain in dealing with these complicated topics. And we've been studying them. It's been a whole series of podcasts, starting with The Science of Insecurity, where one of my listeners said, oh, I want to get into security. It's like, okay, well, listen to this. And, you know, these hours and hours and hours of talks have been towards this direction. Obviously, I'm not a very good teacher, and there's a lot of noise in here. And for anyone who actually sat through some of these things, I do apologize. You're sitting in on a therapy session. But today, I really have crystallized something I can't really express so well. But it has changed me. It has fundamentally changed me. It's the realization that we really don't have an objective model of reality. 
that we can even communicate with people. <clears throat> All of our models are subjective in some way. All of our models are subjective. And that's what the philosophers say. The models are created to help the people of the time. Philosophers create concepts or models for the people of the time to help them. And that's what we're seeing is that even our models are disjointed and broken even in our families that the communication problems that we experience are also due to disjoint models and these things are hard to bridge Shattered reality, little bits of glass. Everyone is on a little sliver. So in those areas, the narrative will help to kind of mold something together. And yesterday I listened to this guy gave a great talk on literate programming and writing a code. He talked about this system called um, <clears throat> this computer algebra system that they open sourced. It was built by IBM for the government. Some company bought it. And it was millions of lines of undocumented Lisp code. And he finally got it back from them. And he said that there's no documentation, and he worked on it, and he didn't even know why he did these things. Like, why did I write the function? Now he's working on documenting them. So documentation is creating the narrative around the function. Donald Knuth talks about this. With his web programming where he created, he wanted to write the um, art and science of computer programming and um, <clears throat> he sent it to the publisher and they told him it was crap, sent it back and then he invented the latex system and the metafont system so he could make his book look nice. But if you ever look at the latex code, it is so dense and the tools are so complicated to use. And it's generally not a fun language to work with, let me tell you. And then he created literate programming where he was actually writing his examples in this language called web, which would then be converted to a code or be converted to a um, documentation which is pretty cool
So this is kind of where I'm going with my, with my mind, is that we have to have the narrative and we have to have the functional view of the world. And yesterday we talked about how we would be able to um, we talked about how we would be able to uh... oh man Hold on, I just had a brain fart. So we have the functional and the narrative view. And those are the two different views. Yeah, and how in general computing is unknown. The function has this huge question mark. Any theory of computation is just a big question mark that they throw at you. It's like a big unknown. So by reducing these unknowns, <clears throat> we can provide contact and provide meaning to people. Now, let's stop here and rethink what we're talking about. Because maybe it's not that clear to anyone who's listening what the hell I'm talking about. Mike, what the hell are you talking about? What is the point? Like, what is your, what are you trying to tell me? Give me a break. Let me think about this. I'm going to come back and I'm going to recap it one more time. The guy said you have to repeat yourself three times for those who weren't listening. And I always thought, well, they could always roll back. But maybe you should also recap yourself to give a summarization. So we're going to do that in a second. Let me think about it. So I'm listening now to the uh, podcasting 2.0 podcast index, and they're creating a namespace. Now, this is something I know a little bit about because I was working on, I'm going to connect this to the introspector. I was working on an introspector for the, um, <clears throat> for the namespace. So imagine if we could extend the RSS feed, this podcast index namespace type thing, and um, we could actually add introspector data. Introspector data. So what would that contain? And um, 
Well, let's say it would start, it would contain a text-to-speech, speech-to-text copy with timestamps of all the words. Let's start with that. It would contain references from those words to what they mean. If it's referencing code, it'll contain selectors for code to define the meaning of the code, repositories, versions. We're talking about a certain thing. So we're going to go from the narrative to the function, or from the narrative to the code, the code being the function. So the podcast is the narrative, and we're going to reference the function in there. Yeah. So um, this is great. So I can create a... a um, A reference to this current second I can say this I'm talking about the last second I'm talking about this sentence so the reference there would be a pointer to that timestamp like I could say now or timestamp cut right segment cut begin new segment Right? So those would be commands in the podcast that would be interpreted. And those commands would then be interpreted and they would transform the RSS. And we would go from the tree structure that just has the words to this is the beginning of a new segment. Right? Now we could guess at the topic of the segment, or we could actually tell it the topic of the segment. <clears throat> this next topic will be on Podcast Index 2.0. Now just imagine if our editor could interpret those signals. Um, so I would just record the podcast, I would insert my voice commands in there, and the editor would come back and send me what it's figured out so far and allow me to continue to edit the podcast. So I could listen to a podcast and say, next segment, stop, rewind. So I could give it voice commands while I'm listening. Right? And then I could assist the editor in... Um, and what it's doing. Now the next thing is is that uh, speech to text, text to speech, so then we could also take the text that we've extracted and have the computer learn our speech model and speak it back to us. Um, <clears throat> so that we could repair garbled words and then we could just have it review and say, okay, these are the words that were garbled. Um, can you please respeak them? Right? Or can you uh, disambiguate them? So we could have this whole session of reviewing 
while we're walking and you can have an interactive editor. And if you need to live on the phone, you can live on a server. So that could be a pretty cool little program. <clears throat> and um, these could be attachments in the RSS feed. as to commands executed and edit history metadata for an individual episode so a full description of the episode and links to all the referenced items um, and a voice model to generate it so the full description of the episode would be enough information to understand and reproduce the episode at least to a certain degree now i'm not saying that the voice model is going to be good enough to replace a person but it, at least we could start with that concept <clears throat> and then um, we could apply more and more functions to the um, episode details and try and understand it more and more and learn more about it or have people mark it up give feedback And we could replace little bits as we go and create new versions of that podcast episode. And then they would be showing up in the feed as revisions. So we get kind of into a Git history. So the Git then becomes serialized in the RSS feed. as well as the concepts described. If they're new concepts, they could also be put into the feed or restated as fundamental pieces. So yeah, we can actually connect the introspector to the podcast and uh, do that via the uh, RSS. And then once we reference code, then we can also introspect that code and then create a link to that in the podcast feed that we just completely blow it up with terabytes of information. Yay. Terabytes. You know. Could include like, we could put an attachment in the RSS feed saying, well, yeah, we need the Linux documentation project. The whole thing. Yeah. Right. Okay, back to listening. All right, we are really going crazy today, kids. So we have self-referential systems. We got the narrative going. We have functions. So that's all pretty good. And um, 
we have communication in the language. And the communication in the language needs a model. And the question is, is our model functional, conceptual, programmatic? Can we define our model programmatically? Like formally, is it a formal model? Can we write it down in Haskell? They're talking about his namespace. I think we should just talk about a definition, a formal definition in Haskell somehow. And that makes me think, well, how do you wrap C in Haskell, right? Foreign function interface. And what can we learn from that for the introspector? Are we not just wrapping things from the computer? Can we hijack the foreign function interface? Reuse it to our purpose? Can we reuse a lot of this stuff? So now I'm starting to work on resolving the symbols. And what can we use? <clears throat> Replacing things with ex or interfacing. Yeah, so I think um, we have really process space, the operating system space, user space, OS kernel space, <clears throat> file system space, then the space of the executable or binary space, the ELF space, multi-dimensional space. how things get into the elf space. 
linkers and loaders, just-in-time compilers. I wonder, I think someone actually tried to write an operating system in Haskell. Hypervisor. And then um, we get into the Git versioning space. The project history, metadata communications. So we have all these different spaces and owners. And I have so many notes on this. We've been over this so many times. Notebooks and notebooks filled with this stuff. But we haven't worked out our function of I mean this is the new stuff is the apprehending of the function and the capturing of it and then making safe, safe of it, making it your own. Neutralization, clearing of it. The gotchas. And um, in the end, we're building mental models, we're building our own neural networks for these things when we make them our own and model them. So generating code is one way of making it your own because that co generated code then gets modified I suppose or incorporated as the basis for what you're doing now I like to generate code on one level and then inherit from there and customize it downstream so you leave that one area fine now, I still haven't um, created the generic Haskell code generator yet, but um, I 
I've worked on a little bit of that. A couple, my last iteration on this. And I really got lost inside of Haskell, so I decided to keep it simple. Surface level, on the narrative level, not on the function level. So the narrative level is the string level, the uninterpreted string, where the interpretation is left to the mind. And the functional level is where we formalize the function so the interpretation can be automated. Make sense? Well, the interpretation... The question becomes, what does it mean? The interpretation. Well, decision-making pro programs. So what is it? Make a decision. Make a decision. Decide if something is in one group or another. A binary decision making. Will this program terminate or will it not terminate? again Yeah. Okay. So it's like we're finally making progress on a lot of fronts. making progress on a lot of fronts. And the great thing is, is that with my Haskell thing, I took a mess that I created and I'm slowly decoding it and bootstrapping it. And eventually I'll be able to bootstrap it into something that will rise out of its representation and create a new representation. So the dragon's egg, right? The compiler is the dragon of chaos or the chaos of the world.
So bootstrapping the compiler out of itself. Go from some description of it in any basic form and reach a point of an abstract representation that can <clears throat> reproduce the compiler. Well, the abstract representation can reproduce itself, at least. In a better form. So it can generate the next version of itself. And then transform itself from the old version into the new version. Or transform something else. See, this is where we get into generality. Allgemein. Gemein means community, Gemeinschaft. It's a uh, society, and Allgemein would be like for all society, I think, in some way. And that's what general means. So it's not like a general, like a uh, corporal. It's, it's general as a for all. I guess that's where the general is. He's for all the soldiers. But, um, really, Generality means if you could solve it for one thing, you could solve it for another. Well, we said the next step is to read in a different version, to read in multiple versions of the trees. descriptions of themselves and then once you can do that then you would read in the discrete tree description of something else and try and do something with it compile it I see that I have some thinking to do, and I will now put this on pause,
So I'm listening to this uh, podcast index. I'm talking about the locked and talking about podcast fraud. And I think there's a pretty easy way to um, prevent log, uh, podcast fraud. It's called assigned commit. So basically, if you are the owner of a feed, and let's say you put your GPG public key in there, and uh, through Keybase you sign that, well, let's say you establish that you own this feed through Keybase, and then you just sign your um, individual episodes and establish that you own it, and if that mp3 shows up somewhere else and does not have the valid signature I mean okay if they modify the file but if the file is exactly the same you'll be able to establish ownership of that checksum and um, yeah if people validate their feeds <clears throat> then we won't have this problem Okay, so now we were talking about notation and uh, intention. Like we were talking about notation and intention. Like what is intended? What is me- what is the meaning of this word? And now we can talk about our listener. I was thinking, you know, we we made a word that referenced the listener, but what about a word that references? Oh, stop. We made a word that referenced the word. We said this word or this sentence. But can we reference this sentence in your mind? Meaning the listener's mind as opposed to the speaker's mind. And what's the difference between this sentence in the speaker's mind and this sentence in the listener's mind? What's the relationship between those two? Right? Um, and if we had some computer that was listening it would be this sentence in the computer's mind or this this sentence in the computer's memory like the memory address of this sentence and how would that change over time and if it was an artificial intelligence if it was the deep state surveillance system that's listening to this Right? And what would be this sentence in the deep state in, in surveillance system? Like how many different places is it copied? How many different places is it referenced? Uh, how many different processors touch it? How many different memory units touch it? How many different databases does it go into? Right? How is it re-indexed, cross-referenced? And um, what's the totality of the impact of this sentence in terms of how far it can go? And what if other people start talking about this sentence? Is it the same one? Is it a copy? Where does it begin? Where does it end? So this is kind of where I'm getting to, can we construct a sentence that will cause the computer to crash? right can we get it to reference itself and think about itself even though we don't know what it is can we get the listener 
to reference themselves and think about themselves, right? Can we cause some kind of reaction, some movement, some emotion, some effect? Can our words have effect? Can we have dangerous words? Right? When is it that a sentence is dangerous? The killer joke. All right. Well, I think that's it for today. And I hope that you enjoyed this podcast, this therapy session, this random rambling of a lunatic. Um, And we will continue on our journey together. Have a great day. Yeah, I'm back. Snap some pics. Anchor doesn't always... um, Anchor doesn't always... um, Rotate the pictures. I can never get it to import a picture. It always puts them in sideways. So I took the picture sideways in both directions. Hopefully I'll be able to learn to upload it one way or the other. I just have the feeling even if I put it in sideways, it'll put it in sideways again. Six o'clock in the morning, shops are opening. I'm going to go do a little shopping. We have been rambling on here for some time. And I guess it makes no meaning, makes no sense to anybody what I'm talking about. Nobody cares. The people who it would make sense to, they're like, your format is so uneloquent. So I guess I got to go back to school. copy the format in the style of the grapes of the grades because that's what people are used to hearing maybe that would or maybe all of what I'm saying has been said before and we're just rehashing things for ourselves rediscovering reinventing the wheel for no reason So, since we've already gone through the barrier of 
unintelligibility. We're going to just continue. I'm sorry. I gotta get this out of me. So yesterday, I finally cleaned up, after, and, and really that session yesterday helped me clean up my mind. Because I've gotten now simple replacement functions. It's a map over all of the... Um, over the hash so we have a hash map it's like for all of the nodes we found just map over them create a new hash and um, for each field we're going to map over it again now this could be reduced in complexity by saying for each field you know split this whole index up so instead of having just the map by ID the global ID we could also map by the field name and ID so that we could reduce the amount of work we need to do but anyway we could also just combine all of these functions we're doing, all these replacements, together. So we just map over it one time and do all the replacements. But if we want to do the Wolfram system, where we go in and we, in each iteration, and we find all the replacements to be done and we do them in any order I think I think it's it's okay it's okay to have some waste right now because we're going to get more knowledge and we're going to optimize it So basically, I have code now to expand or re replace a reference with the value that's referenced to do an ID lookup. And, um, that's working well and now um, in the object that's returned based on the type of the object that we have and the type of the object that's returned we can reduce the fields and simplify them so if it's an integer type I can extract out just the information I need
and I'm actually producing clean and understandable objects. And you know, the first node in the system is the int. It's the identifier for the int. It's like, yes, we have an integer. And I'm hoping that in the end, we're going to model this thing so that we can say this is the Haskell version of the GCC integer type and it's a full replacement for it and it knows how to match itself Like imagine in Haskell we have just some object and it has a function. It's like, okay, well, how do you match it from, how, can you emit yourself as a node to the uh, text? And can you match yourself from text, right? So can you serialize and deserialize yourself? You integer type. Can you create instances of yourself? Oh, integer type. I want int. Give me an int. And that will become, let's say, fix, a fixed point, something that's hard-coded in the code so that we know it'll become a fixed point in the code so that we um, can say these are the nodes that we know about these are the things that we understand and um, once we've modeled something well enough to translate it into that form it can go into our library and um, we can skip it at least for that version of the compiler So that's kind of where I'm going here, is that <clears throat> in the end, we're going to really um, build up a library, a concise library of well-documented objects. That um, we have all the information we need on them. And the tree structure is going to be in there as well. Like anything that we have to comprehend and apprehend will be sub subjugated to our system and re recreated so that we can regenerate it because in the end, if we have some part of the graph, you know, why can't we just generate that ourselves or create a better version of it? And the better version of it is the one that's documented and understandable.
and in the end all of those types are just going to live on the CPU, you see, because that integer type is CPU bound. So it's going to live in the machine description of the particular architecture of that compiler. So we're going to build up knowledge about these chips in the end. And eventually we'll be able to either just-in-time compile or merge somehow the GCC and the kernel information into the Haskell system in some evil monster way. See, this is where we get into the question of a universal model or not. Is each program project its own world right with its own set of forces and its own model and its own biases and its own teams creating its own models so trying to merge or connect two different programs together can be an, um, an exercise in model translation. It's like translate from one system, internal model to a generic model, and then translate that generic model back down to the other systems model. And maybe we can do that in Haskell in a lazy way, in a way that um, <clears throat> will not cost anything at runtime. Maybe we have to build that system. Maybe we need to extend Haskell to do it or learn how it can be done. Boy, we are really getting deep into the weeds here. You know, at some point, I think um, it's like we give up all hope of going back 
some point we give up all hope of going back to uh, to being understandable, getting back on track with this podcast. I feel sorry, but not really that sorry because most people most people will just turn off. I'm like, okay, I'm tuning out. I'm out of here. It just leaves me talking to myself. It's like, what's the point of recording all this? Well, well, there's still hope that we're going to make something out of it. There's hope that we're going to rise up out of the swamps of despair. And make something of ourselves. And maybe this podcast, this recording will be part of it. Where we can look back and say, okay, that's the point where I realized this. That's the point where I realized this. This is where I connected that to that. And show the path, the narrative of how. And then we can connect that narrative to the code. I mean, I really want to continue with my idea of feeding this stuff to the machine. And maybe we can create a computer that will create these random podcasts for me. And just generate hours and hours of rambling. Wouldn't that be amazing? Or is it the computer that's generating these hours and hours of rambling and we're stuck in the matrix thinking that this is real? Let's double down. Is that not the hell that we're stuck in an eternal loop of going over this garbage over and over and over again in an endless loop? How's that for a narrative? How's that for a narrative?
yeah, well, we're switching up our uh, our walk today. Yes, we are. We can't do the same thing every day. And um, yeah, and I'm thinking, um, so we have a whole bunch of fields, which are functions. And we want to model them. So I think the first thing that we want to do is we want to um, say that for the beginning we're going to iterate over all of the objects at least one time for all the functions. All right. So if we have n functions or n columns we're going to iterate at least n times over m objects but it'd be better to say m columns or functions and n objects so we're going to say the relationship between all the objects, so it's n squared, m times. So for each column, we're going to look at the relationship between all the objects. Okay, so that's our polynomial. <clears throat> and that's going to give us a... Um, a domain... And if we model this functionally, we could say, well, what is the domain? We talked about this. How are these related? You know, size is easy. It's like, what is the size, the min and the max of a type? Well, the min and max of a type, the domain is a type object. And the range is an integer constant. So the function min gives you the minimum size of a type. The max gives you the maximum size of the type. It gives you min max gives you the range. And those are integers. <clears throat> those are for integer types. And maybe that min-max also applies to other types as well. Okay, so then we have the node types. So we're going to have uh, n, m, 
M, N, O. So we have O types. So for each type, like each node type, and then we have P classes, node classes, decals and types and stuff. So we're definitely going to get into some kind of multiplication. So each node is going to be looked at by each field. And then we're going to look at them again for each type, node type. So the field plus node type. And then I guess we could say the node type of the range. So it's node types times node types times fields times nodes. Gives us an idea. some of the cardinalities. So I'm thinking that um, I'm thinking that um, going to get into understanding these functions and modeling them. And eventually, we're going to be able to write a Haskell function for each field that describes it. And actually, be able to do operations on it. And there's different levels to this. We're dealing with it on a column level. On a reflective level. So, like, given this function, Give me the name of the field as a string. And maybe these are called classes. And maybe we really have to introduce the Haskell classes. And then we have these different things like show. Oh, there's Venus. Good morning, Venus. Yeah, so I think we're going to get to the point of finding better and better Haskell representations of um, 
of these objects when we become better and better at modeling them and taking them on for ourselves. And we'll create different operations that we can use them on. And then for parsing, we're just going to say, here's a, here's a list of fields that we want to apply, and what we want to understand. A list of functions or classes of functions that we want to um, look at. And here's a list of node types we care about. And then we can just pass all that to some parser and it'll just go over and do it all for us in a generic way so we can start creating generics. So that should be our job for today is to try write some generics. Yeah, and then eventually we're going to write a parser for the tree nodes in Haskell and get rid of that Python thing. <clears throat> One step at a time. But I would really like to be able to write that parser by reversing the dump function. Now, if we get into this idea of literal programming and um, clean, clean it, and uh, what's his name? Church and uh, Haskell. We. Um, We really uh, are talking about these um, finite state automata, knowledgeless uh, proofs, or knowledgeless systems. And um, the question then becomes, can we embed, can we make literate ones, versions of that, where we actually describe
where we actually describe the um, the system. And even if you have an absolute description of it, does it mean anything to you? Okay. <clears throat> so this is giving me something to work with. Um, and I will talk to you people another time. We are going to switch topics now. And I'm going to actually shut this off because I think we had enough for today. <clears throat> And um, thank you for joining me on my therapy session.